find ourselves in Acts chapter 8 this evening. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Acts chapter 8. If you want to start an argument, I've got you covered, okay? <laughs> Pick a sport, poll people about who the greatest player in that sport's history is, whether it's basketball, soccer, golf, baseball, boxing, right? There's all sorts of different ideas, and if I pulled the room on any one of those sports, we probably wouldn't come up with single answers on any one of those, except for there's really one, there's one sport I could think of where we'd probably have a consensus on who the greatest of all time is, and that's swimming. The greatest swimmer of all time is? Mark No, it's not Mark Spitz. <laughs> it's conclusively what all the rest of us thought Michael Phelps right? <laughs> There's an agitator in the front row. <laughs> Michael Phelps, right? He's won 23 gold medals, broken numerous world records, single-handedly changed his sport. It's hard to put anyone in the same category as the most decorated Olympian of all time, front row. <laughs> On the other hand, his status it might not last forever. In fact, it's not lasting already. Just this past summer, two of his world records, both in his signature stroke, butterfly, were broken by up-and-comers. In July, 19-year-old Hungarian swimmer, see my tie-in to Hungary, Hungarian swimmer, Christoph Milak. Do you guys know Christoph Milak? <laughs> A 19-year-old Hungarian swimmer beat Michael Phelps' time in the 200 meter butterfly by more than three quarters of a second, pretty fast. Commenting to the press, Phelps said this, as frustrated as I am to see that record go down, I couldn't be happier to see how he did it. It happened because there was a kid who wanted to do it, who dreamed of doing it, who figured out what it would take to do it, who worked on his technique until it was beautiful, and who put in the really, really hard work that it takes to do it. My hat's off to him. In competitive athletics, there will always be the unending pursuit of greatness, right? And the new generations of players are constantly studying, evaluating, learning from, copying the great ones that came before them. Caleb Dressel, he's an American, he's a 23-year-old who broke Phillip's other butterfly record last summer. He's spoken of watching Michael Phelps swim his historic 2009 race. He said plenty of times looking at that race strategy, trying to learn, trying to develop, trying to become the next great swimmer. Uh, Dressel even swam with Phelps as a teammate in the 2016 Olympics. And so for sports, this is all well and good, but tonight we're going to see this sort of mentality, this pursuit of greatness and this pursuit of leaping into prominence and this mentality of personal ambition and the quest for uh, being greater, trying to make its way into the church. And the results aren't pretty, of course. Along the way, we'll also see the kind of faithful humility that God does use in order to accomplish truly great things. Now, we begin in verse 5 of chapter 8, just after a tidal wave of violent persecution has forced most Christians out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding regions. And Luke, our author, zooms in on one example, a, a for instance here, in the life of Philip. We've met Philip already. He was one of the seven chosen to serve um, there with Stephen and those other guys. And so as Luke zooms in on Philip for a little while, and in verse 5 we read this, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Luke calls Philip a herald 
in this verse. Heralds were the means by which sovereigns got the word out, right? They served as messengers and as diplomats in history. Philip is in the kingly service and has a very important message, and he's sent out not just to exist as a member of the king's envoy or a member of the kingdom. He says, no, you're a herald. Your whole uh, you know, function is to go out and proclaim a message to the people of the world. And so uh, he's going out and he's doing that, but when you think about it, there's a lot stacked against him as a herald. Uh, he's got Saul, the vicious murderer, on his trail, and he finds himself one day in a Samaritan city, not the most welcoming location for a Grecian Jew who has a religious message to share with people. Most of you as Bible students are familiar with the deep cultural and religious divides between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, they were profound. They were vicious. They were deep divides between these two groups of people. And yet here is Philip unabashedly and unreservedly proclaiming the Messiah to this group of people. This on its own is a remarkable reminder to us that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, right? Uh, he's the Savior of all men, the Bible says, especially those who believe. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. He, he'll save Jews or Samaritans. And the New Testament lays it out uh, in even more detail. It says, hey, he saves free or slave, rich or poor, civilized or barbarian, men, women, or children. It takes all kinds. He's a savior of all men. You know, in Norse mythology, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of uh, Valhalla, right? Whether you're a Thor fan or a Led Zeppelin fan, you've heard of Valhalla. And so Valhalla, the place where the, the Vikings wanted to go. Well, did you know that Valhalla in the teachings of North myth Norse mythology is only open to men, only men, and only men who had died in combat. And of those who died in combat, Odin only would choose half of them and the rest would just go somewhere else. And so, uh, not a very open invitation to people. Are you a woman? Are you not a warrior? Are you somebody who wasn't part of the army of, uh, you know, of, the, of the Norse? Okay, well then, sorry, you're not even invited. There's no place for you in Valhalla. Now, imagine Philip coming with a message concerning the eternal Jewish king, right? That's not a headline that plays really well in Samaria, except for this king is not a respecter of persons. He's not... Uh, racist against the Samaritans. He doesn't see them as mongrels or half-breeds or the other things that Jews of that day sometimes said about them. But instead, he says, yeah, this, this eternal king of, the, of Israel, the king of the world, the king of heaven and earth, the king of kings, he sees you as dearly loved children. And he wants to invite you to have a full share of his kingdom. That's the king I'm here to proclaim to you. That's the Messiah who has come and laid down his life so that you could be saved. Verse 6 says, the crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lamed and were healed. Just really quickly, going to keep beating this drum. Uh, for those who teach that the miracles of the book of Acts were only for the apostles, have another problem here. Uh, Philip's not an apostle, but he's doing great signs and wonders. No biblical reason for us to think that the miraculous does not still occur today. Now, Philip, when he got to this city, 
didn't launch any initiatives. He didn't raise any startup money. He didn't do anything strategic. He didn't work out a five-pronged plan to conquer the city. He didn't do anything like that. He just preached, right? He just talked to people. He just shared the message that had been delivered to him. And the Holy Spirit anointed that message, and the Holy Spirit blessed the work with signs and miracles. This city was suddenly in the middle of a genuine revival. That's what we would call it. And throughout history, there have been many times and in many places where remarkable revival has broken out uh, with the preaching of the gospel. Now, while this sort of spiritual awakening doesn't always happen when we preach, it is a helpful reminder that the gospel actually does make a difference in the lives of people, right? The gospel has legs to stand on. It actually has power to transform lives and to change communities and to set people free. God's message to the world is not just some sort of a pseudo-psychological comfort or some other feel-goodery that is so often peddled today. Uh, it's real. It's powerful. It makes a difference. It, it's transformative. It's sent so that people can be released from the captivity of sin and be made whole by the power of Jesus Christ, the coming King. So very different what the gospel is compared to uh, the other messages that are so often uh, broadcast in the world. Verse 8 says, and so there was great joy in that city. You know, real ministry, real Christian ministry, real godly work is more than just hype. It's more than just marketing. It's more than just a fancy package that looks well and tweets well and, you know, Instagrams well. It's the real power of God at work in lives, which then produces actual joy and gladness and rejoicing. Imagine for a moment, you know, this city in Samaria here, uh, it's different than what we experience in the 21st century in Hanford with, you know, all of our, you know, size and modern conveniences and transportation and all of that. This city was probably sizable, but Obviously, the, the communities were more tight-knit. You knew more people. You were more intertwined with one another's lives because you had to be. You, could be. you couldn't be quite as isolated as we could be today. You knew the cripples on your block, right? You walked by the beggars on uh, your corner all the time. You interacted with them. You probably knew of their stories. You knew demon-possessed people. That's a scary thing to think about. And people say, oh, yeah, you, you see that in the Gospels all the time. Jesus would get places, or here in the book of Acts, they get places, and they say, yeah, that guy over there, yeah, he has a demon, and there's nothing we can do about it. And sometimes he throws himself into a fire, and sometimes he attacks people. But yeah, that, that guy, he's demon-possessed. And you knew all of this stuff. Now, imagine for a moment what it would be like to have all these people you know who are sick, or imagine all the people you know who are sick. Uh, with some infirmity or cancer, or, you know, lifelong diseases, those sorts of things. Imagine that all the people you knew, sick or injured or dying, they were made well all of a sudden. They were made well because a guy came to town, started talking about Jesus, and then healed people, and they were all made well. Imagine that you actually knew in your cul-de-sac at home that, yeah, those two people over there, they're possessed by the devil. They're possessed by demons. And then those people are being set free by the power of the gospel. These must have been such wonderful days in the marketplaces and house to house in the city as people not only uh, received healing and not only received this message of hope, but uh, also had the guarantee of the forgiveness of their sins and the security that they had been granted access into heaven and that they uh, were being made right with the living God. It must have been amazing. You know, we pray that the Lord would do something like this in our own town, 
He, we don't know, uh, you know, why and when the, you know, the Lord brings genuine what we call revival or awakening like this. He does sometimes. We should pray and ask Him to do it and just live faithfully in, in the meantime. Because Philip didn't go and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a revival in this city. He didn't plan anything. He can't plan revival. He can't bring revival any more than we can turn, you know, water into gold. And he said, I'm just going to go and be, my, be the herald that I'm supposed to be. I'm going to share the gospel. And this is what the Holy Spirit was doing at the time. Verse 9 says, A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. Now, Luke uses a fun word when describing Simon here. He says, Simon claimed to be mega. I just like that. I don't know why. It's mega. I'm mega. He was the original Mega Man. I wonder if he wore the blue suit. Anybody who knows who Mega Man is? Capcom, old school cart, yeah, old school video game, Mega Man. All right. Now, while the extent of Simon's powers, uh, what the extent of his powers were and what his practices were, we're not sure. That's kind of left in the dark to us. Sorcery, uh, when it's, that word is used in the Bible, can refer to fortune-telling or black magic or occult practices, even drug use and purveying of psychedelics, those sorts of things. What we know is that sorcery is condemned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, it's condemned at the beginning of the Bible. It's condemned in the book of the Revelation. And it seems from how Simon is described that he was more than just some con man. He wasn't just a trickster. He wasn't just a snake oil salesman that was pulling one over on everybody. Uh, because he had hung around this area for quite some time. And this is what the assessment of Simon was from the people. It says in verse 10, they all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. And they were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. And so there was something behind uh, what he was doing. It wasn't all just tricks. Con men like that are just faking and just lying can't stay in the same place for years and years and years and years. They get into trouble otherwise. And so there was some sort of satanic power behind uh, what Simon was doing. It's not the first time we've encountered this in the Bible and won't be the last time even in the book of Acts. But he went around letting everybody know that he was a great mega man. And he had some, some sort of satanic power backing him up. He was so effective that he was known around town as the great power of God. Now, maybe he gave himself that name, I'm the great one, right? But that's what people called him. Um, some historians and scholars even feel that he had made messianic claims, saying, saying that, hey, I'm the Messiah, and you guys all need to come and pay attention to me. I'm Mega Man, after all. But, you know, for someone being the great power of God. Pretty interesting contrast here. Because when the lame limped by Simon, they stayed lame. And some of his fellow citizens were tormented by the very demons he had sold out to, right? The power of God seemed only to benefit Simon and no one else in his case. And sadly, people couldn't see that. They said, wow, this guy has power. Wow, this guy's really great. He's amazing. He told me so himself. But he didn't help anybody. His message was empty. Uh, he, we're going to see that he was all about self and self-aggrandizing and, and, and power for himself and position for himself and prominence and all of these things. And so we just want to be careful. When people come around saying how great they are, number one, uh, 
try to imagine the Apostle Paul talking about how great he is. But number two, notice that when people go around talking about how great they are, then notice how uncharitable they are and how unhelpful to others they are and how ungenerous they tend to be. Verse 12, but when they believed uh, Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And so now we have a really dramatic contrast. And as you go through the text, you'll notice that Luke keeps using the same words for either side, paid attention, astounded. You'll see these things popping up on either side in referring to uh, people listening to Simon, people listening to Philip. Uh, it's kind of interesting. He, he's setting up a contrast on purpose for us. This table-waiting refugee from Jerusalem who nobody had ever heard of, he arrived talking not about his own greatness, but the greatness of his king. He says, it doesn't matter who I am, but I want to tell you about my king, a king who's coming, a king who wants to bring you to heaven with him, a king who wants to include you in his coming kingdom. There's a king they had probably heard about, at least the name, Jesus, this same Jesus who once sat down for a talk with a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, and a dramatic uh, thing happened there in the town that she was from. This king who didn't make himself great by taking advantage of others like Simon did, but rather a king who took anyone who was willing and made a place for them in his own kingdom. And while it's true that Philip was performing miracles, Luke is clearly putting the emphasis on the message that was being preached. It was good news indeed. And so it, it's true. Philip was performing miracles and casting out demons, but the focus that we keep coming back to as Luke writes this out for us is that they were listening to a message. They were listening to what he was telling them about Jesus Christ, and, and that's what they were locked into. Well, that's what all, most of them were locked into. Uh, Simon was not. Look at verse 13. It says, Then even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. While Luke presents the people in general as focusing on the message and the name of Jesus Christ, he presents Simon as being obsessed with the signs, obsessed with the miracles. And here he is found somewhat creepily uh, following Philip around, taking notes, observing uh, the word used there is sometimes can be translated as a spectator. He was observing as a spectator, taking notes, trying to figure out how the trick is done. Maybe you've seen clips or on TV that show uh, uh, Fool Us, Penn and Teller's Fool Us. Anybody heard of that before? Penn and Teller, the famous magicians, uh, they have this show where they have other magicians come out, perform tricks, and try to fool them. And Penn and Teller are professionals, Right? And so most of the time, they can see right through. They say, oh, I know how you did that. And they can explain, they can see the trick happen and explain back to this other magician, I know how you did that. I see the, how, the backside of that. I know how the sausage is made. And then every now and then, they come out and they can't figure out how you're doing that. And that's effectively what Simon is doing here. He's putting himself there in the chair and he's saying, hey, how's this guy doing that? You know, I know how I'm doing it over here. I'm faking some of it. I'm doing weird occult practices for some of it. I'm giving people magic mushrooms for some of it. But how is this guy doing that? That guy was lame, and now he's not lame. How did he do that? If you play an instrument, you've probably watched someone else perform, you know, somebody really great, and watched them and thought, you know, I, I want to see how they're doing what they're doing, Right? Uh, how are they forming their chords? How are they moving their hands? And in that moment, you really stop listening, at least when I've done that. I'm not listening anymore. I'm watching. I'm, I'm observing. 
I'm trying to take mental notes in my mind. It's more like reconnaissance. I'm not listening to the music anymore. But doesn't it say that Simon believed and was baptized? What are we to make of this? Well, it's going to become pretty clear that Peter is going to receive a word of knowledge from the Lord and mark Simon as an unsaved individual on his way to hell. So, was Simon, who is sometimes referred to as Simon Magus, was he just a liar? Uh, was he not ever saved at all? Was he saved and lost his salvation? What's going on here? Well, the Bible is clear on a couple of things. First of all, the Bible is clear that, you know, if you belong to the Lord, nothing can steal you out of the Lord's hand. And so uh, we have no problem saying that it's not true that Simon was saved for a few minutes and then lost his salvation. That's not true, okay? The Bible's clear on that. The Bible's also clear that sometimes the devil plants counterfeits among God's people in order to try to disrupt God's work from within. Jesus talked about him being an enemy who sows tares among the wheat, right? They grow alongside, and they're only known in the end once it's uh, harvest time and once they're all grown up. And uh, we know that there are people also who think that they're in right standing with God but are in fact lost despite the fact that they think that they're following him. Jesus said, very sadly, that in the end, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this for you. We did that for you. We worked powerful things in your name. And he's going to reply, yeah, but I never knew you. You never had a saving relationship with me. In the book of James, we're given an important verse. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's going to become clear that Simon is not a doer of the message that he had received. He's not really listening to what's being told uh, to him, and he clearly has not received the Holy Spirit. And so whether Simon was just faking it in order to get closer to Philip, or whether he had actually tricked himself and thought, yeah, I'm kind of going to go along with this. I like to go with the flow and be involved and mix and shake with the people who are doing stuff. We're not quite sure. We also know that it says, hey, the Bible says even the demons believe, right? Right? And it certainly doesn't mean that they're saved. And so sometimes people get a little bit troubled by Acts 8.13. We don't need to. Uh, there's a lot of good biblical teaching that give us context for what Luke is saying here. Verse 14 says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. Now, one of the sub-themes we've been trying to notice in all of these studies is how unstrategic the disciples were in this period of time. Philip doesn't send a message to bring down the big guns. Hey, I cracked this, you know, this new territory open, send down the big guns, and we'll, you know, take over Samaria. Uh, that doesn't happen. He's just doing his thing. He's just sharing the gospel, being used by God, going with the flow. And the apostles hear about it through the grapevine. And so they say, well, Peter and John, why don't you guys go check this out? We heard that this is happening. I guess somebody should go see whether that's really happening or not. And they're not going to try to keep Philip from becoming too popular or anything like that. They're not coming down to say, okay, okay, youngster, you've had your fun, but we're in charge here. They don't do anything like that. It just seemed good to go down and witness this remarkable work. And really, it's a good thing that they did for the Samaritans' sake. Verse 15 says, after they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. A couple of issues here. Let's get the easier one out of the way. 
When it says that Philip was baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus, does that mean he was baptizing contrary to what Jesus had commanded after his resurrection, right? He told the disciples at the end of Matthew there, you are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is Philip making a mistake, and is that why the Holy Spirit hasn't come down yet? There's no reason to think that. In fact, the same phrasing, baptized in the name of Jesus, is going to be used in chapter 10 when Peter baptizes Cornelius, and in chapter 19 when there are found believers who only receive John's baptism, right? And so Luke's using shorthand here. There's no reason to fault Philip and say, you didn't do the baptism right. That's what's wrong. And so we, we can get rid of that easy one. But why hadn't the Holy Spirit come down on them? What's the holdup? Luke doesn't make it altogether clear. I think one of the best reasons that at least commentators put forward is that something very new was happening, very new. Uh, the gospel was, for the first time, going outside of Israel and outside of Jewish communities. Understand that uh, up until this point, every Christian's a Jew, pretty much. Everyone. And now, for the first time, the gospel is breaking into a different kind of community. The Samaritans and the Jews, well, this gets complicated now because they didn't have dealings with each other on a cultural level. Jews, religious Jews, didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans and vice versa. They had big arguments about how you were supposed to worship and where you were supposed to worship. Huge divides that weren't simply overlooked. I mean, big, big, big difference. And so, had there not been an apostolic connection here, it's really possible and probable that two separate churches would have started developing from the beginning. Not just two churches in two different cities, but a church divided by race. Here's the Samaritan church, we do this over here. Here's the Jewish church, we do this over here. Now, that was going to be a nagging problem for the church throughout the book of Acts, especially once Paul comes on the scene and explodes the gospel into the full-blown Gentile world. The church in Jerusalem and some of the Jewish Christians, they just had a hard time accepting the Gentiles and the Samaritans. And so that's, that's an issue that was, they were going to have to deal with in their hearts. But it seems that God waited to send the Holy Spirit until these Jewish apostles came and put their own hands on these previously untouchable Samaritans, acknowledging that they were one in Christ, they were one body, one church, brothers and sisters together. I believe there was another benefit to the apostles being there at the time, and it has to do with what follows. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power too, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Simon had made a public profession of faith, but it's clear he had not turned away from his idols of power and selfish ambition and a desire to rule over others. He thought that position and authority in the church was for sale. And it's clear that when the Holy Spirit came upon some, it did not come upon him. He didn't see the Holy Spirit as a person. He saw it as a power, him as a power to be wielded for personal benefit. Now, let me ask you this. Philip's going to move on, right? He's going to end up in Caesarea eventually. The apostles are going to head back to Jerusalem. Who are these group of people going to put in charge of the church when those guys leave if nothing else happens? If, if we only got to verse 17, 
Who's going to be elected the first, you know, leader of the church? I'm going to suggest that they would unanimously say, well, Simon needs to be in charge of the church. He's the great power of God. He's the guy that's astounded us. He's the guy that we've been going to for that connection. He's the mega man. He actually kind of said he was the Messiah. I guess we'll overlook that part, but check it out. This guy already had a direct line to God, and now he's a Christian, and now he can, you know, do stuff with the Holy Spirit. So I think that about 10 seconds after the apostles and Philip's cleared out of this city, Simon would have been in charge of this group of believers. Now, how devastating and disastrous would that have been? It would have been terrible. Simon had already explained to them how great and spiritual he was. And I think that without this apostolic intervention that God provides, Simon would have become the leader of the church in this city. An unregenerate, power-hungry, self-aggrandizing, greedy man. It would have been devastating to their spiritual development and to their community. From time to time, we hear unseemly stories about influential people buying ambassadorships to cushy postings in the government, right? That certainly doesn't sit well with any of us. It happens all the time in just about every administration. You hear these rumors or stories. And you know what? That shouldn't sit well for us. But it should bother us much more when people think they should receive some sort of prominence or priority within God's church because they made some sort of contribution or because that they decided they were great. That they're mega men and mega women, and so let me in the front of the line. Get out of my way because I'm the person who needs to be in charge. That's what Simon was attempting here. Only he didn't just want position. He didn't just want popularity. He wanted to be a gatekeeper between people and God the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, excuse me, can you give me this power so that I can, you know, anyone I lay my hands on will receive the Holy Spirit? And the flip side of that is, and anyone I don't doesn't, right? He wanted to be the gatekeeper, And that's just a terrible thing. When all along, Philip and the apostles are preaching a message of grace, of free access to God's wonderful gifts. A few years ago, I was watching the video of a church. It wasn't the Crystal Cathedral. It wasn't some notorious prosperity gospel ministry. But the church and the pastor had been, little by little, moving more and more into that style of Christianity that seems to be very popular today, where everything's about hype and image and swagger and material And at the end of this message, and the message was about serving God and giving him your best gifts, the pastor drew everyone's attention to the front of the stage where some boxes had been set up, and he said this, this is going to be a special spiritual time, and if you need prayer for what you're asking God to multiply in your heart, or if you're sick and want to be touched so you can be healed, then you come up and ask them to pray for you after you've given your gift. Wow. I I just... I was shocked uh, because I didn't think it was that kind of a church. That's a lot more like Simon Magus than Simon Peter. Uh, God doesn't charge a toll because the price had been paid at Calvary, right? And so if we ever say, if you want to get prayed for, drop a quarter in the bin first, you should just walk to the door and not come back. And any church that does that, you should head for the door and not come back. Here's what Peter thought of Simon's idea, verse 20. Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be attained with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord about the intent of your heart, uh, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Peter demonstrates a word of knowledge here as God gives him a glimpse inside the heart of another person. What's most remarkable 
is that the door of forgiveness was still open, right? The door of forgiveness was still open to Simon. You can still be a part of God's plan. You can still be a part of God's family. God will cover even this with his grace because of the blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's amazing. That's the most remarkable part. A man who wanted to buy the power to stand between God and others and hold it over them, a man who claimed to be the Messiah himself, a liar, a man whose whole life was like a tree bearing forth the evil fruit of jealousy and wickedness and bitterness, God would forgive even this if Simon would just surrender and repent and turn to God away from his idols. Sadly, Simon still wasn't really listening. Verse 24, please pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Peter had just explained that there was no go-between. He was free to pray to God directly, ask him for forgiveness. But Simon here is demonstrating that he's still bound up with his fleshly mindset. Okay, you pray for me since you have the mumbo-jumbo power. Undo the hex you just pronounced on me, and then I'll be okay. He's not listening. And that's where his story ends as far as Scripture is concerned. Some of the early church fathers wrote that he did not repent, went further into heresy. Some feel that he is the father of Gnosticism, that he went to Rome and, you know, became an anti-Christian weird nut job. We're not totally sure what happened. What we know is that in his quest for greatness, he completely missed the work of God in his city and the opportunity to actually be a meaningful part of it. Uh, the way to be a part of God's great work is not a strategy, it's not a system, it's not for sale. It's just accomplished by having a real relationship with the Lord and being full of His Holy Spirit. That's not reserved for a few elites who go around and tell everyone how mega they are. Access is given to anyone who's been born again and wants to serve the Lord. The section closes out with Peter and John's trip home. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord... They traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. You know what I love about this? The apostles take a page from Philip's book and herald the message to the little neighborhoods they come across on their walk home to Jerusalem. I think that's pretty great. They don't try to take over what God was doing in this city. Uh, they just leave Philip and the Holy Spirit in the middle of a great revival. They say, okay, have fun. We're out of here. I've got to get back. As all around, as you watch these three disciples, Philip, Peter, and John, there's no one-upsmanship, there's no jockeying for position, there's no tension, there's no jealousy, there's no lust for numeric success. There's just faithful heraldry. There are a few countries who still have an active heraldry, I learned. Uh, the UK, Ireland, Canada, South Africa. In the United Kingdom, most heralds are full-time employees of the sovereign and are called heralds of arms in ordinary. I like that. In the days of chivalry, heralds would go and wear the clothing decorated with the coat of arms of their master. And the practice still continues today in Britain. They still use heralds for certain proclamations in Great Britain today. The website, internationalheraldry.com, gives some information about the right to wear a coat of arms. They write this, coats of arms belong to individuals. For any person to have a right to a coat of arms, they must either have had it granted to them or be descended in the legitimate male line from a person to whom arms were granted or confirmed in the past. Simply adopting someone else's coat of arms is the height of boorish bad taste and guaranteed to impress people for the wrong reasons. Love that. Our position in God's kingdom and ministry should have nothing to do with buying a position or buying some sort of 
you know, uh, uh, power or trying to tell people how great we are. But instead, it should simply be that we are carrying out the duty that we've been personally assigned by our sovereign and going forth carrying his banner, explaining to the world around us how great our king is, not how great we are. In applying our text tonight, we might think in three different ways, three different perspectives. We're not apostles, so I'm going to have us not put ourselves in their place. But we can put ourselves in the place of Philip, in the place of Simon, or in the place of the Samaritans. Uh, If you put yourself in the place of Philip tonight, if you're a believer who wants to serve the Lord, the application is, hey, do the work of the evangelist. Proclaim your king. Remember that he loves all people. Uh, And no matter their heritage, their ethnicity, any other differentiator, he loves them and he has a place for them in his kingdom if they will receive him as savior. If you want to put yourself in the place of Simon Magus tonight, uh, perhaps you're you know, trying to buy your way into spiritual influence, or perhaps you realize, yeah, I kind of go around tooting my own horn. That sort of behavior just doesn't have a place in God's church. Or perhaps a person has never really turned from some of the idols in their lives. Go and check and be sure that you've been truly born again, received the Holy Spirit, not deceiving yourself. Say, oh yeah, I've turned to God from my idols. And the Lord will speak to you about that. Or we might put ourselves in the place of the Samaritans, the audience in our text. They at one point are very attentive to Simon and his message, a man who claimed to be great, seemed to have some power. They're also shown giving their attention to Philip and his message of truth. And you know, there are a lot of voices out there vying for your attention. I think this application was the best for for my thinking this week. So a lot of voices out there broadcasting a message, right? There's a lot of heralds out there bringing their proclamations, vying for my attention. Many of them claim to be the power of God, and we have to sift through that, right? Just remember this. The Lord doesn't swagger, and neither did his apostles, neither did Philip. They didn't withhold access to truth or ministry or grace until you coughed up enough money. They didn't parade themselves as being great. They were humble and servant-hearted. They were constantly decreasing so that the Lord Jesus could increase. And so when you're being taught by a podcast or a video or some Christian book or an Instagram account or whatever it is, just take a look for a minute and say, hang on a second, who's talking to me? Is the person speaking presenting themselves to me as Mega Man or are they presenting themselves to me as a table waiter like Philip? If they're Mega Man they're probably more like Simon Magus, probably less like Simon Peter or Philip or the Lord Jesus. And so be careful out there. And remember, the Lord wants to use you for particular work to change lives in real lasting ways, to bring joy to your communities, to joy to strangers, joy to people that you know, as he works through you great things. Amen?